0: Hello and welcome to ITWL E-Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself?
1: I'm sure. Um, hi, my name is Kelly Kay, and I'm the Executive Vice President and CFO of TRI. I'm very happy to be here today. Thank
0: you very much for having me. Thanks so much for having us, Kelly. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, I would like to go back with your child. Do you have any memories of where, what you're interested in? I know you're a lawyer. And it's interesting uh, that you're already uh, involved in tech, uh, like GRI companies. company. So if you can tell us what your memories about technology, what are you fascinated about it, or sounds creepy to you? Um,
1: Actually, so I've always been a bit of a sci-fi buff. Uh, My entire life I've read science fiction books. Um, Mostly I think because my father loved to watch Star Trek and things like that when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, but my first memory of robots is really an odd one. It's from the cover of the Queen album News of the World. So um, it was uh, put out in 1977 and it was one of the first albums I had. And I used to stare at the cover. and on the cover of that, for those of you who don't know, is a giant robot like picking up a, a woman and it has yeah. blood on its fingers. And the main song from that is "We are the Champions. So in my mind, I pictured a world where robots were going to, you know, pick us all up and kill us. And they were the champions. Um, so I kind of started off like, like loving and being afraid of robots all at the same time because of the cover of this Queen album that really influenced me as a
0: child. That's super interesting. Yeah. So I'm curious to ask you why you selected uh, the path of being a lawyer. Um, I think it
1: selected me. I didn't select it. Um, I loved reading, um, not just science fiction and fantasy, but kind of everything. And when I finished my undergraduate degree, I actually went off to be an accountant and it was horribly dull. Um, And that's kind of funny that I ended up being a CFO at the end of the day, but I went to law school to read more um, because it's all about stories and analogies. And the law is really about applying past activities um, to current activities and then the kind of the law is an overlay. So I thought it was like an opportunity to read a lot. Um, and when I finished um, law school, I had a mortgage on my brain, basically, because it was so expensive to go to law school. And I realized I needed to be a lawyer to pay my bills. Um, but, you know, I had a lovely career as a lawyer for about 20 years. And nice. now I've given that up um, to work more in the technology space.
0: Yeah, but if you can tell us a story, how it's go for until you now you're TRI, how was the journey in be, being working in these tech companies and taking the responsibility for the uh, legislation and everything in regard to uh, technology until you have been in TRI and the story also behind joining TRI? Okay, great. Um, that's, that's an easy one. Um, so I've actually started
1: my career um, pretty much always thinking about technology. My Mm -hmm. first role was actually at a bank that was thinking about, and this is gonna age me, um, how to actually take traditional banking products and put them online. So this is in a world before we had online banking and online checking accounts, and you could even even fill out a credit card application online back then. And my first project as a lawyer was working directly with the engineers and the product team on creating this online bank and online banking products. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was really where technology and innovation started meaning a lot to me because I realized you have the capacity to make people's lives so much easier and so much better with technology. Um, you know, and, and it's, it, it was really the beginning of things for me. Um, while I was at the bank, um, I met the first lawyer from eBay um, and we were talking about privacy and the internet at a conference together. And I was still a very junior lawyer at the time. And he asked me if I was looking for a job. And I was like, no, no, no. I'm a conservative bank lawyer. I could never go work for a crazy company like eBay. And that was very early days at eBay. And I also would never consider moving to California back then. Um, And he's like, oh, come on, give it a try. And I interviewed the next day with him and the other um, three or four lawyers that were at eBay at the time and a few of the business people And about 10 days later, I was packing my bags, moving to California to go work at a crazy internet company. Um, And that really was an amazing opportunity for me. I spent 10 years at eBay and PayPal both. And it was really about taking another traditional product, an online or an auction product, and turning it into an online auction. And then in working with PayPal, it was trying to create a new method of payments to address the needs of the internet and all the changes that were taking place. And again, it it became all about innovation. How do you take these crazy rules that exist to protect people from a payments perspective to ensure there's no money laundering or fraud um, on the internet and and sell that to regulators around the world? Um, Because I was helping PayPal launch primarily in Asia um, in many different markets there. And I lived in Singapore and was helping that. So Great opportunities to really help educate people who who are looking at things from a more traditional perspective and that we could actually have extra protections built into things, even though they're online and different. Um, And it really allowed um, eBay's business to expand um, as we expanded the PayPal business and really the rest of the Internet and cross-border trade around the world. Um, so I, I really loved that element of the innovation and creativity that was required to, to help solve those problems from a legal perspective while partnered with um, engineers again to figure out what's really possible and how can we think about these things creative and in a creative way
0: um,
1: you know I, I kind of ended up being pigeonholed into a regulatory role um, which I found rather dull. Um, I spent some time working at MasterCard as well in Asia to help them with some of the regulatory issues um, and I I wanted to come back to America and spend some time really learning about new and different things. And I started working at the Wikimedia Foundation um, as their deputy general counsel. And, you know, that really switched my career to kind of be a little bit more broader and focus on kind of first amendment rights, a lot of freedom of speech um, and things like that are involved in the, in what Wikimedia is doing because it's all about sharing information um, and creating kind of an open source platform for that to happen. Um, So that was another great, um, Opportunity for me to learn more about how people think about the open source world from a technology perspective. And that's really tied a lot into what I'm doing at TRI with robotics and open source, um, with some of the projects we're working with. Um, and, and I went to Lyft actually, and yeah. that's when I stopped being a lawyer um, pretty much at that point in my career. And I was really focused on again taking a traditional product, like a you know, almost like a taxi service and helping people understand that there's new and different ways to actually transform the transportation industry. And, you know, again, innovation um, is really at the cusp of everything I've been trying to do with my career. And then the opportunity to come to TRI um, was was brought to me. Um, And at the time uh, my stepmother had just had two strokes Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: my father who was disabled had fallen trying to help her get up and they ended up in the emergency room together. And I was on a business trip and I got a phone call and I just, I was helpless. I could not help them from so far away. And, you know, I was like, what am I going to do? Like this, the situation is going to continue to get worse and worse. And I was approached by the recruiter for TRI and she was telling me about the mission and vision of TRI and what we're really trying to do here to, you know, kind of, basically enable people um, and facilitate people being able to age gracefully in their homes and improving the quality of life of people. And it really resonated with me and made me, you know, make a change when I loved working at Lyft. I loved everything about being there um, because it really rang true to me as to what I wanted to be focused on. Cause I was worried about, you know, my father worried about myself. Um, I'm worried about the, the world. Like how are we going to deal with all the aging people And with TRI's mission really helping and thinking about this, it made me want to come and work at TRI Mm -hmm. Um, and and kind of start again as I started as a COO really just helping on the operations side and the admin side of things. Um, And then over time, my role has expanded um, to kind of include responsibility for even the technical side of things and ensuring delivery of what we're doing on the TRI side. So um, again, I'm excited um, to be on this journey with TRI and really trying to, to bring to life um, what they're focused on in the engineering side.
0: Indeed, it's what a story, very touching story. And I think maybe we can resonate with you. And um, I, actually, you mentioned many interesting parts in your story. And I would like to break it again as a woman and being in a different position. And I think you have been in different countries as well. What really helped you to change? What changed in you in this journey? Something is valuable for you. And make you, make you where are you today at, at RTRI in this journey?
1: Yeah, so I think when I started, I was very, very shy. Um, and I would never speak up for myself when I was pretty much like a bookworm, as I said. Um, and I would never speak up. And I was always in male fields. Um, even as, a, I think as a lawyer, you get an opportunity um, as a woman, because there's a pretty you know, regimented career path for lawyers um, and it doesn't really matter whether you're a man or a woman, um, but it does help if you play golf apparently <laughs> in, the, in the legal world. Um, but when I was at the bank, um, you know, they were really starting to open things up for women at that time. And I'll never forget my first day of work. Um, the, the head of HR, um, came in to give us all our welcome speech and we were sitting in around a conference table and she said, we even let women wear skirt or wear pants here. And I was like, wow, I never even considered that I couldn't wear a pant suit. You still have to wear a suit. Um, but I couldn't imagine like, Oh, wow. Like just recently you had to wear pantyhose and a skirt if you were a woman and they were really just starting to think it's okay for women to wear pants. Um, and I had never really thought like that cause I didn't, I don't know, I guess I lived in the world of books and, and never really thought that I would be treated differently because I was a woman, let alone t- being told what I had to wear. Um, so I think I've been really lucky that I've kind of kept my head down and not said, oh, I want something because I'm a woman or, or let it really influence and influence me that I was a woman and I needed to act differently. I just kind of jumped in and did my job and tried to do my job as best I could. Um, and I also had a have always had <laughs> this idea that you don't say no to projects. Um, I've always been someone that's taken on probably more than I could chew in every role. And that's given me a lot of opportunities that um, you know, other people just didn't jump for. And I figured if I worked hard, I would be recognized for what I was doing.
0: That's and I've been
1: lucky. I think that that's always worked.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And I think what's interesting that you have been in this different position. I'm curious to ask you what is similar between each experiences and most importantly, where innovation mostly comes from. Since you have been working in highly innovative leading companies in Silicon Valley, so what's common? So I think the
1: common theme has always been this taking old world traditional products or services and bringing them online and kind of innovating on the old um, and making them better for society. And and I've always been mission driven and always wanted to work at companies where I believed in what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And and for me, that's like the most important thing. And that's what keeps me motivated is if I I really believe in the mission um, and culture is the other really important thing to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I would like to to touch again the story behind joining TRI. I'm curious, what was the reaction to your stepmother and father about joining TRI and that that story? What the reaction about it? Did they like it? Did they feel happy about it? What the reaction we had?
1: Um, It was, you know, no one's ever asked me this question before. This is a a neat one because I I told my father that I was going to work at at TRI, and he was really excited because he's a car guy. He's like, oh, cars, you're be working on cars. I'm like, well, kind of, you know, we work on autonomous cars. He's like cars that drive themselves. I'm like, yes. He's like, Hmm, that's weird. I don't know if I'm up for that. And then I talked to him a little bit about the guardian technology that we're working on. And he was very excited about that because, you know, he's like making it safer for me to drive as I age is important because, you know, if his vision is slightly bad or if his reaction time slow down our guardian product, um, which is really where the, the car takes over. If a human can't handle the driving condition, He's like, yeah. oh, that's really cool. I was like, yeah, isn't that great? So like, you know, me, I have bad night vision. I'm like the car could help me. And he's like, this is, this is wonderful. And then I talked to him about robotics and we were actually in the middle of debating whether or not they wanted to have a caregiver come into the home to help them because my stepmother couldn't get in and out of the shower. My dad couldn't really lift her up.
0: Yeah. And
1: we're like, and he's like, well, you know, she doesn't want someone to come into the house and help her get in and out of the shower. She doesn't want a stranger helping her. She only wants me doing it. And I can't yeah. lift her up. I was like, well, that's exactly what we're trying to figure out at TRI is, you know, could there be a robot that could help you, like help her in and out of the shower where you don't have to have a stranger in the home or where you're not risking slipping and falling yourself. Um, And then we were talking about things like his arthritis in his hands and I'm like, so right now, you know, you chop all the vegetables and things like that. What if there was a robot that could help you do that um, and be in your home to help you empty the dishwasher or pick up things off the floor that you can't reach? Um, and, you know, trying to build that future vision for him when we were talking about it and he's like, then, you know, that's all really great. When's it going to come? And, you know, I think that that's the the thing now is it's probably not going to happen in time for my dad. Um, but maybe it'll happen in time for me and you and others in the generations to come. And I think he, he sees that as a very inspirational, um, vision for me as, as a, as a person and as his daughter.
0: That's great. I think maybe here's argument. I think this is related to the question about how we would define robotics and AI from a perspective as a lawyer. But the debate is, or maybe the argument is, how we can make this connection? Because for me, I, I'm really conservative, and i don't want to have a stranger if I get older to help me. Uh, and it needs trust and emotion and this connection. So do you think robots have that uh, when we're aging, and you need this human connection part? Do you think robots, when they can, can really do this part? we're just challenging. It's it's really, it's sensitive how we can make the connection with a machine.
1: Yeah. And, and I, you know, we've got an investment. So I'm on the investment committee of Toyota AI Ventures, and we've invested in a company called Intuition Robotics, and they have a robot called EliQ that's really meant to be a companion for the elderly in the home. And it has And what they're trying to do is give it a bit of personality um, to make it more acceptable um, to the elderly. So the people actually talk to it. And they've been doing a lot of user studies on, you know, how do you actually encourage the elderly so they don't feel so lonely when they're by themselves to actually talk to this robot. And it moves its head and it has blinky lights and all. And it's not really a head. It's kind of a thing on a Host, for lack of a better term, that sits on your table. Um, but it's interesting to see the, re- the reactions that they get from it, because you do want to call it by its name. And I think there's a, a, a tie between, um, you know, how do you create a robot that's physically appealing to the elderly, so it doesn't seem so foreign. But I don't think it looking like a person works for them. Like my dad would be like, I don't want like a weird robot that's trying to act like a person in my house, but maybe if it was a one that shaped like a dog or a cat or something like that, I don't know, but it's like really trying to find that human connection um, as we're trying to figure out how to build a connection with a, a, a community such as the elderly or people who are aging right now who aren't, haven't been exposed to robots other than in movies. Um, how do you build that connection? And I think there's a lot to be done from a UX perspective or user study perspective with the elderly today. And our UX team at TRI is actually spending time um, bringing the elderly in to like help understand what their problems are. And, you know, how would you respond to a robot that looked like this or that has this functionality? How would you use it? And and we've done some neat studies where we, our team has actually said, well, okay, here's this robot. Like, what, what do you want to do if you wanted to help you pick something up? And the, the people will be like, oh, well, I would just tell it to do that. And so it's all about like understanding how will the elderly actually respond to these robots in the right way and building the right user studies around it to help them get comfortable with the use cases around it and having them in their home generally.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So for the definition, are you a fan of the definition for robotics uh, from your expertise just uh, as a lawyer in 2 companies and especially here chair now, do you think you're a fan of definition that you have to define a robot in a certain way, or do you think it doesn't make sense to you? I don't think we should. I've I've learned a lot while working at Tier High about robots. Um,
1: I mean, obviously, I'm not a technical person, um, but I think I really need to understand what's going on. And you know, I never really thought of robots in the ceiling. And you know, you don't think about robots in your car or even your car being a robot. But an autonomous vehicle is just a giant robot. Um, you know, think about your Roomba vacuum cleaner. Is that a robot? Yeah, really it is. So I don't think it, it makes sense to try and put a specific definition around them. Because before TRI, I would have said, well, a robot is like that thing on, um, what's Danger Will Robinson show, um, Lost in Space. So like to me, that was a robot before or was c 3 C-3PO. Um, but I think we need to like, rethink how we educate the world about what robots really are um, and how they can help us.
0: Great. So if you can tell uh, us and the audience what actually you're doing in TRI in detail, because I think what, what really makes uh, me sometimes uh, um, maybe not sad, but uh, sometimes an academic community, uh, so you don't focus in uh, ideas or functionality beyond the techn- technical part. So if you can tell us what is your mission and why it's important for TRI. Um, so the TRI mission is about
1: building re- building products for Toyota that improve the quality of life, um, which to me really matters because again, it's about this improving quality of life. It's not just about us building products that Toyota's gonna sell. Um, you know, Toyota already makes great reliable vehicles, but it's helping them find and discover what the future could be. Um, and really focused on the quality of life element of it and not replacing humans, um, but actually enhancing, um, and doing things for the benefit of humanity. Um, kind of very similar to the, the mission of the IEEE. Um, and I, I found that really interesting when I looked up what your mission was, how aligned it was with the TRI mission, um, which I think is, is really wonderful for me.
0: Great. So if I ask you, well, what do you think from uh, your experience, maybe the biggest technological blocks that could face robotics in, in a short and long term from an industry perspective?
1: So, I think the the biggest issue I see is that robots could become a rich person's toy.
0: Um, Mm -hmm.
1: And if we can't find a way to mass produce robots that are reliable um, and not, I don't want to say cheap because that sounds bad, but, you know, cost effective so that everyone can get the get access to them and especially the people who need them the most. So again, thinking about the elderly, we don't want to just help the rich elderly because they'll be able to afford whatever they want. We want to be, be able to help everybody. And those are the people that actually we should be trying to target. So I think if we can't find a way to make intelligent robots um, that are cost effective that we can get into the hands of the people that really need them it's going to be a humongous stumbling block for adoption of robots um, Mm. around the world.
0: Yeah I think that's a question may be related here about uh, given the current situation uh, we have COVID-19 how does GRI envision effective deployment of uh, robotics to mitigate risk of human work interaction. I think there's a lot of opportunities coming out of this situation. So how do envision would be the effective deployment of robotics? So at TRI we really focus on capabilities and not actual
1: product development. Um, the product development side of things takes place a little bit further up the chain um, in Toyota, but you know I think for us we're primarily focused on, you know, things like manipulation and fleet learning, um, not on the practicalization. but I think we are already thinking through how robots could help, you know, ensure that there's not so hum- so much human-to-human contact. Um, so we've had a couple meetings and discussions and brainstorm sessions um, since COVID on, like, w- what could the future of robotics look like um, mm-hmm. to help COVID, And, you know, thinking about autonomous vehicles, obviously, if there's not a driver in the vehicle and there's passengers in the back that couldn't otherwise drive themselves, an autonomous vehicle could allow for that type of separation. So a robot would be helping out there. Um, There's the opportunity for it in, you know, short delivery. So robots that can do delivery from the curb to the front door so that people aren't being exposed. You know, should you need medicine delivered or food delivered? So robots could help in that space. Um, Actually at TRI right now, we're using a robot um, to disinfect our elevators um, Mm -hmm. and other spaces using UV light. So the robot actually has the UV lights um, attached to it. It goes into the space and disinfects so that a human doesn't have to go in and do that work right now. Um, They could help in a hospital setting um, again with disinfecting or otherwise delivering things. There's not so much human interaction within hospitals. Um, So, I mean, those are just some of the things that we've been brainstorming and thinking through, and, you know, what could our – how do we think about what we're developing and the research that we're thinking about at TRI? How could that actually aid in the future of these products that could be developed Mm -hmm. by others?
0: Yeah. So if I ask you what are the major challenges uh, that TRI wants to solve? I know it's very competitive, but uh, uh, something may be very challenging uh, and you can say about it. Um. So I think major challenges for
1: us, it's really building these capabilities that are designed to amplify humans, not replace them. So a lot of our work is you know, focused on this ampl- amplification concept. So even thinking about Toyota factories today, you know, they don't replace the humans in the factory with robots. They actually provide robots to help the humans in the factory. So um, you know, when I went to visit the factories, you know, there's a big engine block, and a human actually uses a robot, so they're directing the robot with their hands to pick up the engine block to move it into the next stage of the development um, of the vehicle. And it's, it's interesting that that's also what we're trying to do, and the, the big challenges we're trying to face at TRI is how do we amplify the humans, improve their quality of life, allow them to stay in the home longer, and we want to do it in a way that keeps people happy. And you think about my dad, I'm going to keep using my dad as an example. Um, he has his own business and he makes rods and reels and he uses his hands a lot. He's always in his workshop. If my dad's arthritis gets so bad that he can't do certain parts of the mechanical workings of the, the rod and the reel um, and a robot could help him. So maybe the robot does the super intricate work that he can't do because his hands don't bend like that anymore, but he still gets the, the pleasure and the happiness of doing the work himself. Same thing with when he's cooking, he loves to cook and, and slice things and mix things up and like make meals for us. Um, you know, At some point he's not gonna be able to hold the knife. Um, how do we make sure he can still cook dinner and you know, maybe the robot helps him with the knife or stirs the pot or picks up the heavy object for him. So yeah. I, I think for us, it's really about trying to solve those challenges and it's the balance between providing assistance and help to people with a robot and not replacing the things that give them joy and happiness in their lives.
0: That's wonderful. So if I ask you about the progress of the uh, robotics industry, how do you see the progress? Because we saw sometimes robotics uh, startup fails sometimes. And it's, it's still, in, still, I think it's in fancy, but how, how do you see the progress in general, in, in industry robotics? I think, you know, I I look at it from a slightly different view than
1: I think a a researcher would look at it, um, which maybe will give you a strange answer, but I think there's too much of a disconnect between what researchers are working on and what the product needs actually are, and I think that that's where startups can start helping us, Um, because then you, you, you put in place kind of what are the problems that we're trying to solve in society, and then how do you put the overlay of what the product solution actually is? So to me, it feels like we need a lot more user experience research done and a business overlay because we're we're building robots that people can't afford or don't need. Um, And I think we need to figure out what the the confluence is of those two things, of making sure we build what people want and solves a problem for them and it's cost-effective. And the businesses that are going to succeed are the ones that actually can find that sweet spot of there is an actual need and it's got to be simple. Like the the robot itself has to be simple as we're trying to get people to start buying them and using them right now. And that's why I think the Roomba is such an amazing thing. It's just such a simple thing that solves a problem for people today of like who wants to be vacuuming all the time, especially if you have a cat uh, or, or a German shepherd like I do. Um, you know, these things are amazing. And and it's just the Roomba found its sweet spot. So how do we figure out to find a sweet spot for other robots that are out there um, to allow us to create a good business model around them and get people to actually want to buy them and be willing to buy them?
0: Actually, I think uh, your answer is very excellent. And uh, and that's what we need, actually. I, we have this question, by the way, in the podcast, And I think it's a way how we approach um any problem in in our community is whether it's technology driven or product driven, and I think that's that's there's a tra- trade off And I think what you mentioned is the most important thing we have to consider for designing uh, effective robotics. So yeah, thank you for this answer. Um, so, if you can tell us more about project forces you to be innovative and creative, what does project if you remember? Um.
1: I think it's a project I'm in the middle of right now. Um, So I was recently appointed uh, the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at TRI, Mm. and I've been trying to think through the best way to bring research to life within TRI that has a lens of diversity and inclusion incorporated in it. So instead of researchers going off and just doing their own research, um, again, they're trying to solve problems, obviously, but how do, we see, how do we include this lens of diversity on some portion of our work or a large portion of our work so that we actually can design and kind of our, focus our research on problems that will help um, underserved communities? Um, and whether that means testing in different communities, understanding the needs of different communities, um, or even having diverse researchers working on projects because they're gonna look at things from a different angle. Um, so I'm you know, working on kind of what the strategy should be behind it as opposed to like a world where it's just expected to happen in the background. And I think everyone has good intentions to always think about diversity and inclusion when they're you know, designing products or when they're thinking about their research. But how do we make that a targeted effort um, for our, uh, for TI itself um, is kind of one of my projects. So um, yeah. to me, that's a lot about, you know, thinking through things creati- creatively because um, researchers and scientists like to like create their own thesis and move forward with their own plan. And they don't always want to be told, Hey, I want you to put this different layer or different lens on things. So uh-huh. I'm still working through how to, how to make that happen in a way that doesn't stifle people's creativity. And in fact, have them come up with their own ideas as to how to solve some of these problems.
0: That's super important. And I think this this question, I'm curious to ask you this question, how can we enable a diversity of approaches get exposure they deserve and prevent an overinvestment in limited techniques? In academia, I think there's a tendency to establish a strong belief about uh, other fields that come often at organs or maybe elitism and discouraging exploration of ideas outside a ministry. So the question is, how can we enable... How can we enable more inclusive culture around the competitive idea? I think what's really interesting here, because I think even in industry, it is it's super competitive, and in academia, is super competitive. But I think in, in your story, it's about helping humankind, and in, and there's a, a cruel competition that uh, between companies. I know it may be sensitive, but uh, how you see this competition around ideas? So. I think
1: that goes right back to my thing of the challenge I'm facing right now from an innovative perspective um, is, is you're right. I think, you know, researchers again, have their own thesis, their own way that they think they want to do things. And a lot of it's, it's clear that the numbers show it. Um, There are not a lot of, you know, black people in the robotics community, there's there's a growing element of that. Same thing with Latinos in the robotics community. And how do we actually ensure that we have more diversity in the people that are working on these problems Is kind of one way to get more diverse projects out there as well. Um, and also I think challenging um, your researchers to think about diversity in their work is another important element of it. And that fundamentally it, at some points products are going to be built that don't make sense unless you're thick looking at it from a diverse perspective. Um, you know, if we're building robots for the home, if we only look at homes of you know, white rich people when we're designing our robots, what happens when those robots go to Japan um, and they're going into smaller homes that the robot won't even fit in? Or what happens if we're trying to help an elderly person in a low-income housing development where the homes are smaller, where there's different types of stairs, where there's different types of appliances that they could be working with? So I think if you want to be successful and you want to actually see your research end up in a product someday, you have to think about diversity at the point that you're doing your initial research, um, or it's not going to be useful. And you know, that's going to call out the people who aren't applying diversity into, the, into their minds when they're doing their research.
0: Yeah, that's super important as well. So I'm curious to ask you, what is the most impressive robotics uh robots, I mean, uh, in existence today in your opinion and why? I get to pick one. Um,
1: I was recently exposed to um, a company that's working on, it's like a a ceiling robot where it almost brings down um, like, so if you live in a small apartment, um, you could basically ask your robot to set up your bed and the bed would come down from the ceiling. Um, You could walk in there and it uses kind of artificial intelligence and these robotic arms, voice recognition, all kinds of good stuff. I could say, I want my purple shoes and the box from the ceiling that held my purple shoes would come down. Um, And that would mean like, I wouldn't have to remember where I put stuff, which I think would be great because I lose things all the time in my closet. Um, But it just is such a cool space saver and idea um, for like city living, um, especially in San Francisco or New York or London where you have like no storage space. Um, You know, you can't afford a place with multiple bedrooms, that type of thing. So I just thought that was just the coolest robot that I've ever seen.
0: That's super great. I think uh, I think it's about, comes about tiny places and that's take it to another level. I, th- I think that's super cool, yeah. So, um, if I ask you what makes a startup in robotics successful, if, because there are many students also listening to you now, um, how you can, what, what could be the steps you have or advices to make a successful startup in robotics? So, I think... Um, Thinking simple, um, mm.
1: solving a practical need, and making it cheap. <laughs> that's
0: perfect. Okay. That's, that's personal. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. But I think, I think the challenge about the competition in the startup, but I think uh, you're right about the idea. If you have an idea to solve a practical need. Yeah. So we are closer to the end, and we have a few questions. Do you think ego is important when you're working in industry, for example. yeah. So I love and hate the ego. Um, I think you
1: have to have an ego to have the courage to face the tough problems uh, because you're stepping into, you know, the unknown. And if you don't believe in yourself and have enough of the ego to do so, especially when you're a researcher, you're not going to go for the hard problems. And I think what we need are solutions to the hard problems. But you have to be, you know, you have to know there could be failure. Um, and that's where I hate the ego because if you're, if you go in there so egotistical that you cannot fail, um, and you must win, um, that means you won't accept failure and move on to the next thing. And so I think, you know, it takes a big ego to move forward and be, and do the scary stuff and try and tackle the hard problems. But it takes putting your ego aside to know, okay, I'm not going to be able to solve this problem. Um, or I failed, um, at something and moving on to something new. So I think that there's, there's a big balance there.
0: That's a good answer, yeah. So do you have any robot at your home now?
1: Yes, um, I actually have a Roomba, um, because I have animals and there's hair all over my house, and if it wasn't for the Roomba, I would be constantly vacuuming. Um, <laughs> I have an Alexa, um, and oddly, my refrigerator is a bit of a robot.
0: <laughs> wow, <Well>, that's cool. <laughs> what kind of robot you are aiming or aspiring to have in your home? What kind of robot you want?
1: Oh, another robot that I want. Um, I truly cannot wait um, for the autonomous car to come out (laughs) so Mm -hmm. I don't have to drive anymore.
0: So that would probably be my dream robot. Okay, that's cool, yeah. And what is the most inspiring book you have ever read? So
1: I'm going to give two answers to this. One for um, All the Light We Cannot See, which is a book about World War II and its historical fiction. I just found that very inspiring um, and then like the real book that helped me in my life a long time ago when I was that shy girl and it was how to win friends and influence people and don't hold it against me. But it really did help
0: me try and figure out how to talk to strangers. Wow. That's a good book. Sounds. Yeah. In the next 100 year, what the thing you wish humanity can do? One thing you wish. Um, peace. I wish we could find peace. Yeah. Yeah. We need peace, yeah. And if you remember, what was the best advice was given to you, whether personally or professionally, and it was a life exchanging for you? Not to be afraid. Not to be afraid. Great. So do you have any final words you would like to say for robotics community?
1: I think the main thing for me as a, a non-roboticist or engineer is to just keep it up keep working on trying to solve the hard problems and, you know, finding solutions for us in the future. Um, And, you know, especially as the work that we're doing at TRI, um, as I get older, I would love to have those robots helping me in the home.
0: Great. Thanks so much, Kelly. I really enjoyed this discussion. Thanks so much again for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much.